Chapter Nine of Abandoned by William Clark Russell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abandoned by William Clark Russell. Chapter Nine: The Chase. On the second October, making it rather more than a fortnight since the arrival of the boat's crew. A man named Lydiart, being the first to awaken, quitted the cave and came into the open, where he yawned and stretched his arms and then slowly looked around him. It was blowing what sailors would call a royal breeze. Wings of dusky clouds sailed under the sky. The east was a moist purple, and the clouds came out of it stained with that tint. But before they gained the central heaven, they changed into greys and browns, with their skirts gilt by the sun. The stretch of coral sand was noisy with breakers, which charged in cannon shocks and receded, sweating, cruelly fingering long black lines of weed as though they were tresses of the land they were seeking to tear off. And the ocean was filled with lighted lines of seas, whose edgings of foam ran athwart in parallel archings, till the whole surge sank in its own splendor of whiteness. Loud was the organ thunder rolling from the stern abrupt which the island opposed to the sea southeast. The little piece of land was full of the music of the morning, and the seabirds glanced as they wheeled and slanted from dark shapes into bright. A second man came out of the cave. He was grim with a fortnight's growth of hair on face and head. Anything in sight? He asked. Ain't had time to have a look round. I'm growing buddy sick of this," said Number Two. "I'm for making a start and chancing it. That there Captain Reynolds ain't fur out, you lay. Seven months he says, and nothing showing. And here we've been getting on more'n a buddy fortnight. And what's hove into view, good for anybody but a blind man? Here a third sailor came out. He was followed by Goodhart and the other people, whilst Reynolds was to be seen approaching from his crack in the dell, just on that part of the island where the men stood. Only a little piece of the ocean was to be seen. Jim said, "The boatswain, run aloft up that hill and see if there's anything to report." Good morning, Mister Goodhart," said Reynolds. "Good morning, men. Blamed slow work this, sir," exclaimed the boatswain. "I feel sometimes as if I could have swum the distance. Three hundred miles, ain't it? The English Channel's been swum. Strike me silly," said a sailor. "If I wouldn't rather turn jellyfish than keep all on here." Wait till you've had over seven months of it," said Reynolds. "That's just what we don't mean to wait for," then answered the boatswain, who, though he recognized Captain Reynolds' position as a master and gentleman, was heedful to assert himself as commander of his own little company, who would take their opinions from him, or at least submit to be advised by him, without allowing that Captain Reynolds, though a shipmaster, had the least authority amongst them. The man who had gone up the hill to report, having climbed about a hundred feet, stopped to take a look, and no sooner were his eyes upon the sea than he pointed and yelled, "There she is, all a growin' and a blowin'! Sail ho! There she spouts!" On which everybody rushed up to him, saving Goodhart, who followed very slowly and with pause. 
This time the whole of a ship's sails were in view, a square of white like a butterfly on the margin of a meadow. She was down away westwards, too far off for the trim of her yards to be discernible, and the hull of her was out of sight behind the sea-line. Everybody but Reynolds saw her. At times he thought he caught sight of her, but his injured vision was betrayed by the white leap of the seas, and had he been alone she would have passed unnoticed. "'Which way is she standin?' exclaimed the boatswain, panting with his hurry of limbs and excitement of spirits. "'She's on the port tack,' said the man who had reported her. This man had the best sight of any amongst them. In fact, it was as good as a little pocket telescope. "'How's the wind?' cried the boatswain. "'East,' answered Reynolds. "'If she's on the port tack,' cried the boatswain, almost shouting with sensation, "'and the wind's east, she'll be heading so as to be liftin' her hull by the time that she's abreast of this island, and I'm for making for her and shoving right athwart her as she comes headin' up, so as to bring the northeast point of this rock on her starboard quarter.' This was closely followed and immediately understood by the men. "'I'm ready. So am I. So am I.' So were the whole six. "'Will you come, Mr. Goodart, and take your chance?' shouted the boatswain to that gentleman, who was painfully and slowly ascending the slope. "'I don't understand you,' was the bald reply. The boatswain ran down to him. "'There!' he cried in his eagerness, catching hold of Goodhart's arm. "'There's the ship. Do you see her, sir?' "'Yes, about ten miles off,' answered Goodhart, staring at the vision on the sea. "'We're all for making a dead pull to windward, so as to bring us within sight of her by the hour she's got the northeast point of this island on her starboard quarter. Will you come? There's no time to lose, sir.' "'You mean to pull windward against this sea and breeze?' exclaimed Goodhart, with a lift of eyebrows and a blank stare of wonder. "'Yes.' By this time the others had come down and were gathered round these two. "'What do ye mean to do?' said Reynolds. "'We're a-goin' to row within sight of that ship,' shouted the boatswain hoarsely, and with a danger signal in the tone of his voice. "'I advise you not to try it. Not against that weight of sea and wind,' said Reynolds, striving to see the ship. "'We shall lose her if we stand here jawing,' cried a man." "'You'll need to pull eight or ten miles to put yourselves within reach of her sight,' said Reynolds. "'What's her speed? You say she's on a taut luff? Call it seven. "'Come on, all as means to come,' roared the boatswain, smiting down Reynolds' reasoning as you might hit a man on the head with an iron pin, and away he ran in the direction of the creek where the boat lay, bawling as he sprang along. "'If we stop, argufying, we lose her.' Instantly the sailors followed, racing and leaping like schoolboys just let loose. "'You'll report that we are left if you come up with her,' shouted Reynolds. A fellow flung his arm up in token that the request had been heard. Reynolds' heart was in that distant sail, which was now, when he looked, a very dim, delicate vision in the horizon of his eye. His soul raved for release from the withering imprisonment of this island. The mere figures of the running men fired him with a passion to run with them. For a minute the inward conflict was a very madness of mental convulsion, a tempestuous lunatic dance of contending feelings. 
He was a man, however, habituated by his profession to the forming of the instant resolution. This is the inevitable education of the sailor who is worth his salt. Fog, collision, fire, the sudden tempest, the mighty ice island looming in thunder of bursting surge out of the snowstorm, do not admit of leisurely deliberation. Now he was understanding that vessels might have passed and he had not seen them, and Goodhart's hope and expectation of a comfortable deliverance, therefore, might be shared. Next he witnessed rashness, danger, and disappointment in that long pull against a head sea in a fresh wind. Likewise he perceived that the men's chances of salvation would be good hearts and his without their peril, for it could not be doubted that when the captain of the vessel had been informed that two men were left, he would heave his ship to and send for them. And finally he was impelled by the affectionate regard in which he had already come to hold Goodhart to stop with him and share with him in such fortune as was to befall, be it what it might. The men gained the boat and jumped in. She was of the whaler pattern, sharp at both ends, a good boat, pulling five oars with inboard airtight boxes under her gunwales. They had taken care to keep her stocked with food and fresh water. "'It's a pity,' said Goodhart, who with his companion had walked a little distance to obtain a better view of the boat's departure, that they did not think of cutting down a long bow to attach a shirt to for waving. "'I can see the ship now,' said Reynolds. "'She can't be less than ten miles distant. If the boat heads due east, then, at three miles an hour, and they'll not sweep more out of her, it will be noon before she arrives at the point where she is to come in contact with the ship. And the ship,' he continued, making his calculations as he spoke, "'will, if she holds on all, have to sail a distance of thirty miles to arrive at the spot aimed at by the boat. She will accomplish this in four hours, and the boat will be one hour away from her, three miles short.' "'What headstrong fools!' exclaimed Goodhart. But the men were already rowing. The boatswain steered. The oars flashed and sank, flashed and sank, as the little fabric was urged over the still waters of the creek. Then she was in the open, and leaping, and Goodhart and his companion saw the figures of the men bending and backing with those motions of energy and determination which signify that the impulse which governs the toiler is the heart's cry of life or death. The boat sprang bravely, showering crystals, heading right into the glittering lines of light which were rolled by the breeze under the soaring sun, until she faded out even to the straining gaze of Goodhart, whilst the ship had floated up the horizon to the line of her bulwark rails, lifting jibs and spanker-boom, and passing on with the beauty, grace, and dignity, which are the gifts of sunshine and the blue breeze and flashing waters to a ship when she is under full sail, leaning the stirless bosoms of her canvas to the spectator, and beheld from afar." "'I shall make a smoke for that ship, but not yet,' said Reynolds, who was now seeing her clearly. "'All's ready up there,' exclaimed Goodhart. "'I saw to it yesterday afternoon,' Reynolds rejoined. "'It will take her two hours to give us a sight of her hull.' "'I am going for a drink and a dip,' said Goodhart, and he walked leisurely in the direction of the river. 
There was not much room for the exhibition of the mysterious in this little island, though an illustration came when the lonely captive had awakened and seen the figure of the owner of the chest walking shadowless in the moonshine, hat in hand. But two points Reynolds had observed in Goodhart. He was never seen to take off his coat, night or day, and though he bathed three or four times a week, he always contrived to take to the water with the strictest privacy, never before saying, as he had just now said, that he was going to the river for a plunge, but mentioning the circumstance to Reynolds afterwards, as the minutest incident came weighted with deepest interest in this dull and dismal routine of watching the sea and catching and cooking fish. From these trifles Reynolds inferred that Goodhart's disproportioned bulkiness of trunk was due to some painless but morbid growth, or that it was a deformity which he desired with a feminine passion to conceal from the sight of others. Reynolds stood for a little while with his eyes fixed on the ship. His gaze was yearning, his heart ached. She was scarcely wanted to bring before him the image of his wife, for not an hour of the day rolled past but he thought of her. But that floating cloud out yonder recalled the flying spur, how she might have been out there just where that ship was, how, if Lucretia had given him her heart again after he had decoyed her on board, she might have been with him as though they were together in that vessel, leaning side by side over the bulwark rail, and viewing this same little island, with its silver lightning of cascades and its lace-like trimming of brilliant breakers, the theatre to him of a most sad and pitiful drama of shipwreck. He sighed, and cast his eyes up at the hill where the fuel lay ready for kindling, and after weighing the chance afresh of such a smoke as he could make being seen by that ship, which was still very nearly hull down from the altitude from which he regarded her, he went to work to build up a little fire in the cook-pit, then entered the cave, where were some fish taken yesterday, cut off a couple of steaks and put them into the shovel, which remained the only frying-pan in that island, all the while strenuously thinking of the probability of the boat being seen by the ship, heartily praying for it, and gravely doubting her chance. There was nothing to eat but the mushrooms and the fish. When the little meal was dressed, he sat down to wait for his companion and his friend. He presented a most ragged figure, and one who had previously known him might have judged by his face that his nature had undergone a change. His look was pensive. He wore an habitual air of melancholy. There was no fire or spirit in his speech. He suggested a man whose heart is cowed by thought that is ebon-tinged with memory, and forlorn almost to hopelessness in anticipation. The mother of this man would not have known her son. He had that shaggy look which is often the impress of toil, and nearly always accompanies privation at sea. Seven months of solitude and the dismal eternity of the encircling ocean had so wrought in him that if you had met him in a crowded street he would have been the one to seize your gaze and compel you to look after him, and to proceed in thought about him. Goodhart came from the river and sat down beside him. 
"'We should be thought vulgar for eating this fish with our knives,' said he, with an easy smile and gentle voice that might have made you suppose they were breakfasting comfortably at home. "'One does not learn good manners at sea,' answered Reynolds. "'The best of manners, surely,' replied Goodhart. "'When a sailor is a gentleman, a more perfect gentleman you shall not find. "'I am fond of observing the contrasts of life. "'Take our situation. "'Compare a nobleman in Grosvenor Square at breakfast. "'Take the tramp who has dosted under a hedge through the night, "'breaking his fast on a turnip he has sneaked from a field "'after a wary look round.' I remember passing a church where a wedding had just taken place, and the bells were pealing joyously in the tower, and in the graveyard stood the marble figure of an angel pointing with one hand to heaven, with the other to the grave at its feet of a girl of twenty. But whilst they talked they kept their eyes upon the ship, for it was impossible to foresee but that at any moment she might shift her helm to obtain a closer view of the island and Reynolds must be ready to rush up the hill to light the fire. "'I sometimes wondered,' said Goodhart, "'what form madness would take in a man who should lose his mind in shipwreck on such an island as this.' "'I have sometimes thought,' exclaimed Reynolds, "'that madness is the delirium of a disposition that has lain latent and even unsuspected.' For example, I am an ambitious man, but do not know the absurd heights to which my soul secretly aspires until I lose my reason, and then I believe I am a king or god. In my case, I believe had I gone mad here, I should have imagined I was Brigham Young. Goodhart was amused, and laughed with gentle enjoyment. I have heard of a man, said he, who believed he was his own father. He had made a will leaving all his property to himself as his only son, but his worry was to know what he should do if he was to happen to die before his father. I have also heard of a lady who believed she was the author of the novels of George Eliot, and was afraid of looking into a mirror for fear of seeing the ghost of George Henry Lewes. "'The only instance of sanity I have heard in madness,' said Reynolds, "'was the case of a journalist who, whenever he felt the drink-fiend taking possession of him, "'compelled his wife to put him away.' "'He stood up to look at the ship. Goodhart also rose, and they viewed the distant sail for a while in silence. "'She was holding stubbornly on.' So far it was certain she had not brought the boat within sight, unless she was to give the spectators an illustration of behavior, which most happily is very rare at sea, by seeing the boat, yet standing on and leaving the tossed men to their fate. The breeze was steady and gushed in large liberal folds. The island sent up its patient moan of shaken trees and shrubbery, and the beach its sullen roar of surf, and the southeast cliff its sulky thunder of foaming surge. They continued to watch and wait. Then Reynolds went up the hill to kindle the prepared fuel in the hollow. The stuff made a thick white smoke, but it was blown low at a sharp angle from the hollow in which the wood flamed, and as the ship drew further eastwards, and as the smoke was blowing due west, it was less and less likely that the foreshortened beacon trail would catch the eye of any one on board, or, if it did, the white smoke, like one of those country fires which discharge shafts of vapour from dead leaves and rubbish into the autumn atmosphere, might be thought to proceed from a little volcano. 
but Reynolds was bound to give himself and Goodhart a chance, and for a whole hour he plied his fire, laboriously fetching big armfuls of stuff, and raising a thick smother whilst the ship grew smaller and smaller, as with something of the slant of a seagull's wing when it wheels in its flight, she vanished in a shadow of mother-of-pearl into the east. Reynolds rejoined Goodhart. "'What time is it?' Goodhart pulled out his watch and said, Eleven. Reynolds glanced at the sun and judged Goodhart's report to be fairly accurate. "'That ship is not to prove our salvation,' said he. "'If she is to catch a sight of the boat she should have seen her before this, with a long enough pause to enable us to know that she had hove to to receive the people, or by a shift of helm which would have changed her shape.' "'I shall keep a lookout for the boat,' said Goodhart. "'If the men are disappointed, they must return. "'What else remains?' "'I don't know,' exclaimed Reynolds, with a gloomy shake of his head. "'There are some mules amongst them, "'and the boatswain is a good leader for people of that sort. "'They may reason, having left the island and come so far, "'what will be the good of returning. "'We know what we've got to expect.' much more chance of our being picked up the further we go than keeping all fast aboard that piece of rock they're without a compass said goodhart suppose they get some thirty miles distant and resolve to come back this island is small and without its bearings being known or a compass to help the helmsman it may be easily missed thus they conversed whilst the hours wore on reynolds as a lookout was of no use Goodhart did the staring part, but never could see anything to report. He was calm, resigned, grateful. He said, At all events, Captain Reynolds, we know where we are, but we don't know where the boat is. I'm thankful to God I was not tempted to trust myself in her. Figure the weariness of that little skipping structure, the hopeless grinding of the oars compared to which the toil of the galley-slave is a joke for the felon is not threatened every instant with death, the miserable and pitiful lookout, for what? Why, to see only the curling heads of seas, clouds of spray which must keep you bailing, the breeze freshening, the night coming on, and a little stock of dried fish, a few tins of meat, and six gallons of water for eight souls, for that's how it would have been with us had we gone. I believe you are right, "'I believe you are right,' said Reynolds, in a voice that was coloured with the spirit of consolation that he drew from the happy resignation and comfortable philosophy of his companion. "'If the boat does not show itself before dark, I shall give her up, not necessarily as lost, so far as the men are concerned, but as lost for us.' He snapped his fingers to a sudden uncontrollable impulse of vexation. At one o'clock, by Goodhart's watch, the ship was out of sight. At six the dusk was gathering, but the watchers saw no signs of the boat. The long runners of the ocean streamed in steady procession out of the east. The clouds, opening as they rose, flew in many windy spectral shapes, a very Chinaman riot of shadowy monsters. The moon floated up and tinged with a delicate silver-green, the foliage and the waters which she shone upon. "'It is strange,' said Goodhart, viewing the satellite as she swept through the phantom rush of wings on high. "'It is strange,' he said, his habit of moralizing and philosophizing constantly taking form, 
that God should have thought it fit to hang up in the heavens two wonderful symbols of creation, its life and its death. In the glorious sun nature lives and moves and has her being. The moon is death, white, silent, cold, awful. In the morning you awaken with life, in the night you go to rest with death. I wish to God, cried Reynolds, with a little glow of passion, that the moon would reveal the boat. There was good hope whilst that boat remained in the creek. The beggars, in going away in her, stole her from us, and in my opinion they are lost men, and we shall be prisoners for months, and perhaps years. He wrung his hands, unseen in the gloom by his friend, for just then the weight of his months of solitude came down upon his heart in a sensation of almost physical oppression, and in imagination he was alone, with nothing to look at but a desolate breast of ocean, with nothing to hope for but the sight of a ship, with nothing to live for but a burden of being that love had abandoned, and shipwreck rendered crushing. Goodhart took his hand and pressed it, "'Keep up your heart, Reynolds,' he cried cheerfully. "'A ship will come, and we shall be rescued. "'All will be well. "'Not very much is needed to make rich the man who has nothing. "'The coming of a ship is no very mighty affair, no prodigy, "'nothing that shall have anything of the miraculous in it, "'and I look forward to being rescued with profound confidence. "'Did you ever hear of the sweet little cherub that sits up aloft, "'forsaking poor Jack?' "'It was a passing mood,' answered Reynolds softly. "'But remember that for many months I have heard this noise of the trees. "'I have watched that moon. "'I have listened to the sea. "'I have thought through many bitter waking thoughts. "'I have prayed to God, alone, always alone.' "'That night they occupied the cave together. "'There was plenty of grass in it, "'and Reynolds easily felt and found a couch near Goodhart's. It was totally black inside, but the silver dimness in the atmosphere lay like tissue paper stretched over the mouth of the cave. Twice before one o'clock in the morning Reynolds went out and gained a height and looked about him, but the boat had not returned. Nothing moved upon the surface of the island but a quick though stormy dance of shadows. It was blowing fresh, the dwarf trees roared with the surf, and the moon shot through the swift drift. He fell asleep, but was awakened by a loud report. Goodhart cried out, "'What was that?' "'Was it a cannon-shot?' said Reynolds, standing up. Another sharp rattle, and the lightning glanced in blue splendor at the mouth of the cave. "'My God!' cried Reynolds. "'What chance will this sort of thing give the boat?' "'But think,' said Goodhart, "'that we might be in her.' The sheen of the lightning sank in instant pulses into the cavern's blackness, and the two men in the flashes were revealed to each other. Again Reynolds stepped out. It was not raining on the island. A heavy thunderstorm was playing over the sea about two miles distant, and the moon was sunk into a mere jelly of moist light, in the shrouding of the weather that was stretched out over the heavens from the electric vapor. "'Goodheart!' cried Reynolds, running to the mouth of the cave to shout. "'Come and see a wonderful sight!' "'What was it?' The lightning was frequent and fierce, and every white or crimson spark that flashed upon the eye its wire-like rill of fire, 
illuminated two gigantic water-spouts about a half-mile distant on the west side, touching them into stately columns of the aspect of white-hot metal, their foot in foam, their head lifted with inky vapour into the aspect of the coconut-tree. "'If they are coming this way we shall be deluged,' said Goodhart. But their waltz was to the southward. The two men watched this wonderful, lightning-revealed picture, sublime and awful with its accompaniments of the midnight, of the lightning-dart, of the thunder-shock, and the universal roaring of an angry ocean. They returned to the cave and lay down, but for some time neither could sleep, though one was a sailor and the other had been well salted, owing to the rushing noise made by the rain, which descended in a living sheet, as though it was a great lake coming down from the edge of a mountain, and but for the cave being on a slope they would have been floated out. The morning was cool, calm, and bright. Their first act was to scan the sea for the boat, but the ocean was a plain as naked as a looking-glass. The water swam to the shore softly, and melted in caresses of froth. "'Do you see anything like a sail?' said Reynolds. "'Nothing,' answered Goodhart, after a long and careful scrutiny of the whole circle of horizon. "'But I am not to be depressed. I am perfectly satisfied to think that I am not afloat in that boat.' "'It is inconceivable that she was picked up by the vessel,' said Reynolds. "'As likely as not they were swamped in the night.' Goodhart went to the river and Reynolds to the rock to catch a fish for breakfast. This morning he secured a fish shaped like a salmon, gorgeously dyed and weighing about eight pounds. He had caught this sort of fish about twice or thrice before, and found it delicious eating. He made his fire and began to cook. Goodhart kept him waiting. Indeed, he grew anxious and was going to seek him when he saw him coming slowly from the direction of the river, holding what resembled a satchel in his hand. He stepped with this satchel-like thing into the cave, and emerged with nothing in his hands. Reynolds looked at him, and instantly observed a diminution of his bulk, that bulk of trunk whose extravagance had often puzzled him. He said nothing, and Goodhart, coming near the cook-hole with his kind and gracious smile, seated himself. Undoubtedly his figure had undergone a change since he had visited the river. He was now a well-proportioned man, without that stuffed look which had excited conjectures in Reynolds. His coat lay open, the massive watch-chain rested upon his waistcoat. His attire was indeed in a state of princely freshness compared with that of his companion, but then he had not been seven months on the island, nor had he been thrown ashore on toothed rocks by the breakers of a gale wind. Goodhart's smile vanished as he viewed his friend thoughtfully, with an impressive and inspiriting air of kindness. They had ceased to captain and mister each other. "'How long will you be able to support this sort of existence?' said Reynolds. "'I keep my mind tranquil with the fixed assurance of release,' answered Goodhart, taking up a slice of fish with a leaf and beginning to eat. "'It may be delayed, but it will come. I do not think of myself as a prisoner. I could be worse off. I have been worse off. This fish is excellently tasted. I do not miss liquor.' Those cascades are a noble drinking fountain. 
I should be glad of a substitute for bread, but whilst our mushrooms flourish I shall not grumble. I am sick of it, good heart, said Reynolds, so will you be soon. I assure you, Reynolds, replied Goodhart, with a note of cordial cheerfulness, that your companionship and my own state, tastes, and habits of life render this imprisonment, as you term it, so little disagreeable to me, that if a few comforts could be contrived, I should be very well pleased to accept this brief sentence of exile as a pleasant holiday in a delicious climate, under circumstances delightfully romantic." Reynolds smiled and bowed, and said, "'You are a true philosopher.' "'What are our wants for this holiday until we are taken off? A little cottage, a loaf of bread a day, a joint of fresh meat to vary the eternity of the produce of the creek, tobacco for the pipe, and a few boxes of cigars. We enjoy a royal state, for we do not need money, and the greatest monarch might envy us for that.' but weigh against our humble requirements the blessings of our escape from shipwreck yonder glorious privilege of bright falling waters the agreeable dishes swimming in that creek or sticking to the rocks or growing in the ground we might go further he added looking significantly seaward evidently thinking of the boat and fare worse when you get home I will not say if you get home in the face of your magnificent spirit of hope. Where shall you settle? Not in Ireland. You are the sort of man they want there. Well, it may come to Great Britain dealing with Ireland as a colony and extirpating the few lingering natives by swamping the country with British emigrants and settlers. That would solve the Irish question, said Reynolds. I shall settle in London, said Goodhart. There you can get everything you want, the best and the worst of everything, and with judgment you can make ten shillings do what a sovereign scarcely does in a provincial town. I hate London, burst out Reynolds, particularly Bayswater. But why Bayswater, laughed Goodhart, why not Hackney or Clapham? I was married in Bayswater, answered Reynolds and jumping to his feet he hove a stone at a penguin that was sitting like a robed bishop on a rock goodhart viewed him for a moment or two in thought do you observe said he putting his hands to his sides that i have lost weight since bathing you are certainly thinner goodhart again viewed him as though he had fallen into a fit of profound musing then rising he said Reynolds, come into the cave with me. End of chapter 9